So you talked about residential school, which is, I know, a tough subject, I believe. You, you went there when you were four years old, right? I was first taken at four years old. Um, we were living on the Doolain site. I remember when um, my father told us that the, the plane was coming to come and pick us up. I remember hiding under the stairs, but they found me, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And I remember going to residential school, flying on the plane. Um, to Inuvik. Was that to right? Inuvik. I was, I was in Stringer Hall, and I went to Sir Alexander Mackenzie School, elementary school. And we were there for from August until June. Wow. Like we didn't come home for Christmas. I was really fortunate. I had my siblings with me, um, so I was able to s- do a lot of Christmas stuff with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and after, I think three or four years, my mother finally said, "No more, enough." When we moved to Cambridge Bay, when we got a house in town, that's when I started going to school in the the school here in town. But it was it it was tough. I had lost my language. Um, my sister told me that when my first year I was in Stringer Hall, when I came when we came home in June of sixty seven or sixty eight, mm-hmm. we walked into my parents' house and we're standing at the door. And my sister says, "My parents are there." And my sister said, "Go to mom and dad." And I can't imagine how my parents felt when I yeah. said, those are not my parents. Like I completely forgot who my parents were. That's Jeannie Ahalwak, resident, former mayor, and former member of the Legislative Assembly for Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. And she's an Inuit residential school survivor. She's our guest as we mark the third annual National Day of Truth and Reconciliation here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Hi, I'm David McGuffin. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. There's a trigger warning for this episode, which is focused on residential school abuses. If you require emotional support, we want to remind you there's a 24-hour residential school crisis line, which can be reached at one 866 925-4419. Again, 1-866-925-4419. There is a lot of focus, and rightly so, on the impact of the residential school system on First Nations people. The system was first set up specifically to wipe out their cultures and languages by forcing First Nations children to attend church-run boarding schools or Indian residential schools, which were sites of unspeakable systemic abuses sexual, mental, and physical. Over 150,000 Indigenous children were sent to these institutions. Thousands of children died there. The system began in the 1830s, ending only in the 1990s. The story of the Inuit in residential schools is less well known. The Inuit in Canada's Arctic weren't forced to send their children to residential schools until the early 1950s, about the same time as when the Canadian government was forcing them off the land and into communities. Despite the shorter timeline, the impact of residential schools on the Inuit was very damaging to children, to families, and to communities. 
My interview with Jeannie Halawak was done in December 2022 in Cambridge Bay, while I was there as part of Canadian Geographic's Passing the Mic podcast training initiative. Jeannie's life was affected in a number of ways by her experiences at residential school in Inuvik, and she feels she got off easier than many, including members of her own family whose lives remain profoundly impacted to this day. So she says when it came time to take part in the government's settlement for survivors of residential schools, she wasn't sure that she wanted to. When the common experience came, the people were applying for the residential school payments. I wasn't, I thought it was for people who were abused. Mm -hmm. And because I, I didn't think I was abused. I mean, I got to meet friends. I got. I had family members around. I had my cousins. I had my siblings. Right. And at that time, my partners asked me, said to me, my mom was gone by then. Um, he said, go talk to your dad. So every every Saturday, I used to go to my dad's house and clean his house. So one day I asked him, what was it like? when we got picked up on the due line and we were sent to Inuvik for residential school, what was it like for you and mom? Yeah. And he said, mom was so depressed. She went from six kids to one in just a matter of hours. Yeah. Mom got so depressed when my younger brother was just a baby at the time and he said, but she was so lonely because yeah. we lived on the door line. And he said, it was a lonely time when you guys went to school. Yeah. And she said there's no choice for them in that matter at all. There was They were told that you were being taken and going to school. And, they and had... I asked him why. I said, why did you let us go? Mm. And he said, well, having one income and eight of us, it was hard to feed us all, hard to clothe us all. Yeah. So we sent you, and at that time, my parents received, were receiving what they call family allowance, child tax. And he said, if we didn't send you, they would take our ta- our child tax away from us. Right. right. I said, okay, I understand. So I decided, after thinking about it for a while, I applied for the residential school money on behalf of my parents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm frankly just being taken away from your parents at age four is abuse. I mean, that's abuse. It is. I thought about it for a long time, and I told myself, like, there were so many reasons and so many people would ask, like, how did, how do you feel now? I mean, when the Pope did his apology in Iqaluit, before that, people would ask me, like, how do you feel? And I said... It was injustice what the government did to us, what the churches did to us. But I wanted to show that I could beat them. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have my language. I still have my culture. Uh, we have a cabin. And we live off the land. Basically, we can sustain ourselves. Um I learned to sew again. I picked up the needle. I can sew for me and my kids and my grandkids. And I could still have a job. 
and still show that, like I was mayor, I was a Malay, I was a minister. Yeah. But I wanted to show that even though the government was trying to make us what they wanted us to be. Yeah, yeah. But I could still speak my language, yeah. live my culture. So I wanted to show them that I could beat them. And I hope, and I did. Yeah. I feel like I did. Seems like you did. Because my, my kids, my grandkids, mm -hmm. they, they basically could live off the land as well. Yeah. And that makes me proud. I mean, they can understand a little bit of my language, not 100%, but at least they try. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and the possibility of reviving that is, yeah, is there. It's, it's there. Yeah. It's just um, learning the language, I believe, starts at home. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah, yeah. In the crib. And just like the, yeah. discipline and, yeah. and living the lifestyle you want your kids to live in. It starts at home. Yeah. Well, talk to me about language because you hear a lot about the importance of language in, in, in making culture stronger or bringing back culture, indigenous culture. And what, why is language to you? Why is that it's so important? To me, it's important because it's our identity. I mean, imagine being a French person and told you can't speak French anymore. Like you lose your French language. Does that mean you're not French anymore? Mm -hmm. That's like being... And Inuk, yeah. if I can't speak the language just because I can't speak, it doesn't mean that I'm not Inuk anymore. Yeah. But to me, it's our identity. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. Yeah. I mean, it describes the land that you're in, too. I mean, English words weren't made to describe what's going on up here. I mean, as a someone coming from the South, I'm so struck by just the different kinds of light and beauty and the different kinds of... You know, people talk about the different names for all the different kinds of snow up here, but those are all your language. It's not my language, right? Yeah, I mean, there's so many words that, like you say, can describe snow. It's the different types of snow. Yeah. Wet snow, heavy snow, soft snow, yeah. hard snow. I mean, it's it's such an amazing To me, it's an, ama an, an amazing language. Yeah. I mean, we've, we're also learning um, as a, in, with the 21st century now, we're starting to come up with words that are scientific words. Oh, yeah. There's words Can you give me an example? to come up with in, in law, yeah. like when you're in court. I don't know a lot of scientific words, but trying to describe when when scientists are up here and they do presentations to the local, our local elders, um, to have interpreters. So now, like, there's a revitalization workshop going on at the Heritage mm -hmm. Center right now. And I know that the Nunavut government was working towards trying to come up with common terms for scientific words, right. for words if you were in court, mm -hmm. or for um, words when you're when it, com it comes to environmental. And um, so Inuit are learning and creating new words so that 
so that um, we can explain to our elders mm-hmm. certain types of scientific words and yeah. that yeah. they've never heard about. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you say molecule in Inuin Naktun? Yeah, I don't There's know. no such word. Yeah, yeah. So those are the kinds of things that you were working on. That they're working on. Um, to I mean to go back to residential schools. I mean people talk about the impact, the intergenerational trauma that comes from that, and that's I think been seeing First Nations all over Canada has dealt with that. And sort of I mean one of the certainly one of the issues you, I'm sure you were dealing with as a mayor and an MLA was um, I mean there's a high suicide rate for instance. There's mental health trauma. I mean I'm just wondering how much of a connection there is between those two things. Do you think? There's a huge connection. I mean, my generation of when we went to residential school, we were never taught parenting skills. We were never taught family life. We were never taught how to communicate with our loved ones. I mean, I I, I can feel it too with my kids because of not having the parental guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tough. I mean, when I first, when I was young, I had my first child young. And it was really hard for me to to be a single parent, to know how to raise my child when my parents didn't even have the chance to raise their children. Right. So it was hard. Um, there was a lot of abuse that happened to residential school survivors. Mm-hmm. And for them, for some people, it's hard to talk about their trauma. So their only way to deal with their trauma was to go to alcohol and drugs. Right. And kids who have parents who are residential school survivors find it difficult to, like, how do you deal with a parent who's an alcoholic? How do you deal with a parent who's a drug addict? Um, so it's it kind of, just continues it just goes from one person from one generation to the next generation to the next generation but there has to be a place somewhere along the way that breaks the cycle yeah and i think i did it with my kids i mean i I'm I'm not going to lie. I drank when I was young. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of drinking. I had my kids when they were young. Um, And then I think for me what changed was when I had my first grandchild. Yeah. And to see my kids going into the alcohol and drug use, I told myself it has to stop somewhere. Right. And the only way I could make it stop was if I stopped. Right. So now I look at my grandchild and 
Um, he's a responsible drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I've instilled in him that education is key. He's graduated from high school. He took the environmental tech program. Mm-hmm. He's 24 years old, living on his own, yeah. and has a full-time job. But he knows that seeing his father and seeing how his father reacts to alcohol has changed him because he lived in a household where there was no alcohol and no drugs. And seeing the effects of alcohol, he just didn't want to follow in that path. So I hope that I've instilled in him that um, you don't have to have fun without using alcohol and drugs. There's so many other ways I learned during my years of becoming sober there's lots of ways to have fun. So I mean, what role does culture then play in that, making that break? And what role does connection, returning connection to the land? And well, I was really fortunate as a child to when I came from residential school, the first thing my parents would do was send me with my sister to their outpost camp, which yeah. is 30 miles east of here. And we spent our summers at their cabin. We did a lot of hunting. We did a lot of fishing. We prepared all our food to store for the winter. And that's how I picked up my way of traditional living on the land. And because I was a single parent, um, as, as I got older and started working full time, I was very lucky to have my sister and her husband take my kids and that's where my kids learned it learned from the land. to so live to live on the land what was that experience what's, what's the feeling you get from that experience it's a warm feeling it's a warm feeling to know that my kids can i mean even calvin he was just a teenager we we've had our cabin since Calvin was two years old when I bought when I built my first cabin and we take him there every weekend. Um, we spend a lot of our time out there in the summer and he's learned to hunt, he's learned to fish, he knows how to make dry meat, he knows how to make dry fish and it warms my heart when we go to the cabin. As soon as we go to the cabin we unload and he's off. Yeah out hunting on his own, and he'll bring back geese or caribou or to know that um, basically he can teach his kids when he has kids one day. And our culture, our livelihood will be carried on. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, So looking forward to the future and we haven't talked about we talked a little bit about climate change but there's there's obviously a, there's a lot going on with that and we talked intergenerational trauma there's all these issues that this community is dealing with but i'm wondering what gives you hope what gives me hope mm-hmm. is we see a lot more youth um finishing their education mm-hmm. We see a lot more programs, on-the-land programs run by our Inuit organizations or with um, other agencies within the community to teach our youth how to live off the land, how to go hunting, 
Um, I always instill in the youth that education is key. Yeah. You can go off to university for a couple of years, but home, you can always come home. Yeah. Once you have that education, finding a job is easy, but you can always come home and there's always people out there who are willing to teach you to go out hunting, go out fishing, build cabins. So it's, that's my hope, Yeah, is that one day the younger generation will say, I can do this. Enough is enough. Inter intergenerational trauma, yes, but we can beat it. With the support of the community, with support of family and friends, we can, we, we'll, we'll get there. It takes time, but we'll get there. That's lovely. I think that's a nice spot to leave it. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you. Thanks so much I for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too. A reminder, there is a 24-hour residential school crisis line, which you can reach at 1-866-925-4419 if you require emotional support. Again, 1-866-925-4419. You can find the three episodes we recorded in Cambridge Bay free in our archives. This includes another episode featuring Jeannie about the Canadian High Arctic Research Station, where she works. And there are a number of other interviews about reconciliation and Indigenous issues in the archives as well. Now, can you do me a big favour and go to your podcast app right now on your phone, on your computer, wherever it is, and give us Explore a Canadian Geographic podcast a five-star rating and write us a short review about why you like us, what it is about the podcast that brings you back. This is simply the best way to get more people to listen to these interviews. And the more people we have listening, the brighter the future of this podcast will be. We want to keep bringing these interviews to you. So thank you so much for helping in that way. So until next time, when we'll explore again. I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. And we flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.